Welcome to the Table Community Church Podcast. The Table is located in the Gallatin Valley in Southwest Montana and is joining God in bringing people together around the good news of Jesus. If you have any questions or if there is in any way we can serve you, please let us know by reaching out to hello at thetablechurch.us. Again, that is hello at thetablechurch.us. We hope you enjoy the following episode. I've heard from this table twice that this better be good today. And so, um, no pressure. No pressure. No, we were just talking about the revival in Asbury, and uh, the, what was often missed was the sermon that was given before the revival broke out at Asbury. And if you go back and you read the article about what happened, this pastor, he gave this sermon and he texted his wife as soon as he left. He said, what an awful sermon. Like, he felt like he, he said, I totally whiffed it. That's what he said. I totally whiffed it. Little did he know, like, as he left, there were people, like, up front having an encounter with the Spirit. And so, by all means, if this sermon's awful, I do expect revival. <laughs> so, um, there, there's my expectation. So, Uh, the idea is that we're looking at the Apostles' Creed in a post-everything world. What, do we, what does it mean to believe the basics when the world seems to be moving on? And what do we mean by post-Christian? Post-Christian does not mean pre-Christian. There was a time where there was a pre-Christianity. Post-Christianity, however, uh, is a culture in which, as uh, Mark Sayers, he's a social cultural commentary, commentator, says, he says basically what post-Christianity is, is the culture has received the goods of Christianity and is now with, does not want the roots. And so Christianity brought a lot to the Western way of thinking about morality, ethics. It gave uniquely the emphasis on human dignity for all. What's taken place is our world has, has now said we appreciate that. Now we're going to continue to move on. We want the fruit without the root. And so what does it mean to go back to the basics, to go back to the roots as a church? Where, from, where, do, we, what, where do we stand? What does this mean? And so the Apostles' Creed is not Scripture. It is a summary of Scripture. It's like a, every, and every word is a hyperlink. You click on it, and it opens up this huge story. And so when you click on something in, in this creed, um, it enfolds you into this unfolding story of God, not a set of doctrinal truths, not a set of theological propositions, not a list of opinions. It, it is a story that God is telling that he invites us into. And so though the creed comes across sometimes as kind of propositional statements, we need to linger with those statements and ask from where are they coming? Because that's important. And so uh, we're, on this, we're on the phrase, he descended into hell the third day he rose from the dead. That's the phrase we're on. Let's read the creed together um, and then we'll jump into the text. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen? Amen. Amen. So it's not Scripture, but it's a summary of Scripture. And today we're looking at, he descended to hell and was resurrected. I'm going to go ahead and preface. 
I'm going to attach articles to the podcast this week talking about what we mean by hell about in this text. When it says he descended to hell, I'm just going to preface this sermon because the most I want to spend most of the time on the resurrection. That's where I want to spend most of the time. So just to preface, when it says he descended to hell, this is not the sort of location that Jesus is talking about in the Gospels primarily. This is another way of referring to, in the Hebrew and early Christian imagination, the realm of the dead. In the Old Testament, the word is Sheol. That's what you find. And so the point is not necessarily what he was doing down there. There's a few passages that tell us what, what was happening in between the time of Jesus' death and resurrection. But this word hell here, um, and many, many, many uh, revisions of the Apostles' Creed try to clarify this. We're just going back to the very basic one. But what they did not mean by hell here is what Jesus is talking about in the Gospels. This is just referring to the land of the dead. The emphasis, what the point of the creed is, when you read the history of the creed, when you study why it's saying what it's saying, the point is not to underscore what Jesus was doing as much as it is to, to, to show you that he went to the depths. His death was real. There is not a corner of death he does not know. That's the point. Good? Can I move on from that? Um, I know there's a lot of questions. Please see the podcast. Please send me an email. Um, I would love to chat. We're, we're talking primarily about the resurrection. He descended to the depths, to the land of the dead, to the place of the dead. And that place is, is apparently separated between the righteous and the unrighteous. And, and he goes and he spends time there, but the point is that he didn't stay there. He rose again. We're going to look at John, all of John 20. And I want you to identify with the characters in some way. Ask yourself, with whom do I resonate? It says, On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw the stone that had been removed from the tomb. So she went to run the one Jesus loved and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we, don't, we do not know where they've put him. For the tomb... The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Stooping down, saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter also came in. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloth lying there. The wrappings that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloth, but it was folded up in separate place by itself. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first then also went in and saw and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she was crying, she stooped in to look in the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting there where Jesus' body had been lying on the one hand and, or on the, on, on the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I do not know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, Why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? This is the first question that Jesus asked his disciples in the First part of the in the first part of John's gospel, what do you want? What are you seeking? Supposing he was the gardener, and he kind of is. She replied, 
Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will take him. Jesus said to her, Mary, turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabbi, which means teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go and tell my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said to her. When it was evening that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Having said this, he showed him his hands and his side, so the disciples rejoiced that they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them, and if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came, and so the other disciples were telling him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, If I don't see the marks of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. A week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas responded to him, My Lord and my God. He is now the first disciple to declare Jesus as God. A breath after disbelief. Jesus said, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But, they, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is God's word. Amen. The point I want to make today is on the resurrection. Now, this is a story that's nearly unbelievable, but history shows that we must consider it and contemplate it very seriously. And as we mentioned before we moved into the service, I'm inviting you to pay attention to what's inside of you this morning. Pay attention to whatever emotions you brought into this room. Uh, pay attention to whatever it is and use what is within you as a way to interact with what God might be saying to you here today through this text. The resurrection is the foundation of the Christian faith. If there is no resurrection, nothing else matters. What happened on the cross doesn't matter. Jesus' life and ministry may be nice, but it ultimately is a little consequence. If the resurrection did not happen, it does not matter. Nothing. It's the foundation. And what I mean by resurrection, I don't mean spiritual resurrection. I mean the physical, bodily resurrection. If you pull that pin out, you undo the whole thing, and everything becomes what you believe about the Scriptures, not what the Scriptures are saying about you. You sit then over the authority of the Scriptures rather than the other way around. This is interesting. We often talk about those who are progressive Christians or those who are conservative Christians. This language is becoming increasingly unhelpful. And the reason why is because even those who would identify as evangelical Christians, nearly 40% of them are okay with Jesus not being God. So those categories are becoming increasingly unhelpful. 
And further, in the UK, a fourth of those who identify as Christians deny the resurrection. 30% of Christians are, are actually, they believe more something like reincarnation. 20% of American Christians deny the resurrection. They use the language of Christian and say, but I deny. Um, he didn't have to physically be raised. When you read the stories of the Gospels, when you look at the blood of the early church, do you think that they believed it was just a spiritual resurrection? Not even close. It is ahistorical and, quite frankly, intellectually lazy to make such a claim. I know that sounds strong, but we cannot miss the emphasis that the Christians wrote about the physical bodily resurrection and its impact in the early church. I'm okay with people who question, you know, of course, this is a place where people explore Jesus. But there are, as we've mentioned, there are key tenets, important truths of the Christian faith that are not subject to your opinion or my opinion. In a culture that idolizes and props up the individual self as the reigning authority over all, this sounds offensive. And we could spend all day talking about the facts. The, there are so many good reasons to believe in the historical resurrection. So many, you know, we don't have anybody from the first or second century denying that the tomb was empty. Everyone's on the same page in the early church and outside of the early church. Christianity's strongest critics, the tomb was empty. Well, what happened to the body? Almost every single argument that has been surfaced has been engaged, responded to, and most people who, who deny the physical bodily resurrection, they don't use those arguments anymore because they found them not to be really persuasive. We could spend all day talking about those. A few things that people all agree on most virtually any scholar you talk to historian you talk to they agree that jesus physically died on the cross he really did die that the movement of christianity happened shortly after his death which goes backwards and kind of countercultural to what would typically happen usually the death of a so-called messiah led to the calming but there were many messiah who claimed to be messiahs before jesus and as soon as they died their movement died out but something happened with jesus that when he died something happened afterwards that took these scattered people and brought them together for a movement. Most people, most, again, most serious historians believe in the historical figures of Paul and of James. James is well written about um, in and outside of the early church. James, Jesus' brother, he became a leader of the church. That's historically true. There's no one that really denies that. But if you read the Gospels, James, Jesus' brother, denied that Jesus was God and didn't become a believer until after his death. We could spend all day talking about the facts, all, all about the, the interpretation of the data, I should say. And I think there are good reasons to believe. And if you're trying to start a religion, Jesus did it wrong. If that's what your goal was, he did it remarkably wrong. The, there are several points that we, could, that we could unfold and say, wow, that goes really against. One of them is the beginning your movement with the testimony of women in the first century is not even close to what would normally happen. And the Gospels are unashamedly clear 
Now, the first testimony to the resurrection comes from women. Testimonies that would not be perceived or welcomed in the life of the court systems. If you're trying to do a religion, Jesus did it wrong. The bodily resurrection. There was no concept or conceived idea for the bodily resurrection as we understand it. In the Jewish imagination, a resurrection of some kind would take place at the end of all things. No context for a splitting history in half with a bodily resurrection. In fact, in the, in the majority world view, the body was something to escape, not retain. And so the idea that Jesus is saying, no, we're going to resurrect this thing and stay in it, was undesirable. Didn't make sense. If you're trying to start a religion, Jesus was doing it wrong. Sociologists, contemporary sociologists, look at Christianity and have said, this is the thing that probably shouldn't have survived according to the way it was started. We could spend all day talking about that. But I can tell you working with young people, they're more interested, not in the facts, not in the give me the best evidence you've got and then I'll believe. They're asking the question, well, okay, well, how do I experience this God? How do I experience this God? The beauty is scripture says that the resurrection is something you experience and I experience and the way in which we can experience it begins now. So, the resurrection is, as evidence, might be compelling for many, but increasingly people are more interested in the experience. So we're going to look at the three experiences here. The first one is this as we read John 20. The resurrected Jesus revives our hope. When we experience the power of the gospel and the good news of Jesus, that's a way of reviving your hope. We live in a culture of hopelessness and meaninglessness. Uh, for years, the modern, the, the enlightenment rationalism that happened a couple hundred years ago said that matter is all there is. There's no transcendent meaning or purpose to anything. And so this began to shape a lot of how we teach, a lot of how we think. And so a reaction to that is what you might call postmodernism. And they say, well, we all need meaning, so it's up to you. The best way to find meaning is to find your authentic self. But the problem is, is the evidence that's out there says that this is not working. People are more lost, anxious, disillusioned than ever before. So the narrative of the self is not really stable, and I think intuitively we know this. This doesn't mean you can't trust everything about your intuition, but it says it's a poor basis for your true stability. The resurrected Jesus revives our hope. Each set of characters experiences a profound despair, but then a return of hope. It's beautiful. What I love about this, uh, J.R. Tolkien, he wrote uh, Lord of the Rings and several other several things. He was a brilliant man. Well, he coined this term called the U-catastrophe. And so I'll show you what it, what, it, what it looks like. So catastrophe is something that has upset, has enormously upsetted you. Something where life will never be the same. Trauma, loss, heartache. And I assume that everyone in this room is bringing something catastrophic into this room at some point in time. Catastrophe. It is the unraveling of what you thought was stable. You catastrophe. You see, in the Greek, you, the prefix you, means good. When you 
when you look at that, it means good. And so what Tolkien says is that what God does is he sort of does a catastrophe. He unravels that which unravels. He brings death to death. At the lowest point of the catastrophe, there's a joy, he calls it a joyous turn. A lift. It's an upsetting of that which upsets. Listen to how he says it. He says this. The resurrection was the greatest catastrophe possible in the greatest fairy story and produces that essential emotion, Christian joy, which produces tears because it is qualitatively so like sorrow. Because because it comes from the places where joy and sorrow are at one, reconciled, as selfishness and altruism are all lost in love. The resurrection is the greatest you catastrophe. It comes at the moment when you read John 20, where no one thinks there's anything worth left. There's nothing left. Everything's hopeless, despair. And it is precisely those moments where God brings a joyous turn we resist the dark, but what if the dark is precisely the place where God is bringing the you catastrophe? That's what's happening here. What are, what are these turns that we see? We see a couple of turns in Mary. We see this turn from ambiguous loss to explosive joy. Boss coined the term. She's a uh, psychologist. Coined the term ambiguous loss. And what she meant by this is there are some kinds of loss that just kind of linger with you. For example, this happens in war. If, if a loved one you lose overseas, um, their body's never recovered. There's no closure, it feels like. It just kind of lingers. You're always asking questions. Abductions. Ambiguous loss. It also happens psychologically, though, too, with friends and family who come down with Alzheimer's. That's painfully known in our congregation. There's this sort of, they're physically present, but not present still. And so that's what ambiguous loss is, is you're just, you're weeping and wondering with no sense of closure. Mary is experiencing this. She's weeping and wondering. And this hopeful lift happens in the garden that is also apparently a graveyard. The unraveling is being unraveled. Death itself experiences a sort of death when Jesus bursts from the grave. The upsetting of death. Now, Mary, I want you to pay attention. Mary does, everyone else leaves Mary at the tomb. She's the first one there. She goes and tells the others. They come back. And it says, but Mary stayed. She's not okay. Where is he? She has this conversation, probably maybe because her eyes are so teared up. She can't really see who it is. or We don't know, but she couldn't understand that Jesus was talking with her. But Jesus gets to the point where he has a couple of questions for her. And what, he, what really causes the you catastrophe is nothing else but him saying her name. He didn't say, let me convince you of a bunch of facts. All he said was her name. 
Mary. And the joyful lift. Does she have all the riddles solved? No. I don't know how you're talking to me right now. Does she have her theology nice and worked out? No. But she's been called by name. And that's enough. The joyful turn. Mary. It takes me to Isaiah 43, 1 through 3. Because this is what God needs to do for some of us and is doing if we pay attention. Is showing you that you are known and that you belong. Listen to this. Now this is what the Lord says. The one who created you, Jacob, and who formed you, Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and the rivers will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, and the flames will not burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel and your Savior. Listen to that. You are mine. I have called you by name. Some of us need to hear that, that he sees you, that even though you have, you're struggling to sense him and see him through all of the tears and the grief and the things that you're going through, pay attention to the words of Jesus to Mary. Maybe that's what the Spirit wants to speak to what's inside you this morning. Maybe he's calling you just by name. You don't need all the riddles solved. You just need to know he sees you. Mary. And when you pass through the waters, not if. Meaning, there's going to be all sorts of catastrophes you're going to experience. But the resurrection means a you catastrophe is coming. In no other world you do you get this hope. None other. A catastrophe is just a catastrophe unless you figure out some kind of meaning behind it for yourself. But in the kingdom of God, with the resurrection, it is a you catastrophe waiting. I had a professor years ago. I'm sure he got this from someone else. He came in coughing sick one day um, into the class, and one of the students said, are you okay? And he said, nothing a resurrection can't fix. The disciples experience a you catastrophe. They go from fear to peace. They see the same thing Mary does, but they respond in fear. It says John believed. We're not sure quite what the depth of that belief was because he's hiding behind locked doors too. The sense is that he knew that there was more to the story. He believed that there was more to the story, but he didn't know the full story. And so they've locked themselves in this room, afraid of the Jews, because with the obvious response, okay, people know back then, just as we do now, that people just don't pop back up from the dead, okay? Like, notice that the typical response is always, who moved the body? The default response was not, oh, he's resurrected. That makes sense. Everyone is like skeptical. Everyone is fearful. Everyone is wondering. And so it makes sense that the Jews would come after them because the Jews would think that they have the body, but they don't have the body. And if, everyone, if anyone had the body, all they would have to do is produce the body and all, everything would go away. No one could produce a body. So they're, they're locked inside. They're, they're fear. And sometimes this is what the catastrophe does. It boxes us in in fear. It becomes like the room in which the disciples are staying. We just stay put out of fear. 
still hopeless. In hopelessness, fearful, anxious kind of dominates. And it looks like that room that the disciples in. It's locked from the inside. It's not open to the other, and it's in hiding. A lot of, I think, this is maybe a little side tangent, forgive me, but I think a lot of our, our resistance to engaging the outside world is rooted in fear. We fear some kind of contamination or something. We're fearful to sit with someone who's different than us. We're fearful to enter into the conversations that require us to listen. And so we box ourselves in, in our little holy huddles, and call it mission somehow. A lack of movement might mean we may believe intellectually, but are we experiencing formationally the power of the resurrection? The kindness of God is not that he'll say, oh, get, get your butts up and get out of the room. The kindness of God is that he enters into that fear. In Belgrade in particular, and in rural areas, we have the gospel of the good old boy. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get to it. That's not the gospel. God helps those who help themselves. That's not the gospel. Jesus has a way of entering into that which restricts us. Not telling us, get over it and move on. And so here you have Jesus entering into the room of fear. And giving them their own new catastrophe. Catastrophe from fear to peace. Twice. Peace be with you. A lot of times we don't need not fear. We just need peace. Peace. And the idea is shalom. The total harmony between you and God and those around you. And so they receive that. And in Thomas, he goes from disbelief to worship. Notice that the disciples' story so that the disciples get to see his wounds. I wanted to read the whole chapter because Thomas gets isolated and picked on a lot. Notice, the text says that Jesus showed the other disciples his wounds. They all got to see. And so Thomas isn't asking for anything else that anybody else didn't get to see. He's not sitting on some kind of intellectual superiority. I'm just a skeptical guy by nature, and unless you give me good evidence, I won't believe. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, look, what you experienced, I want to experience. That's all I'm asking. And so Jesus shows up. Again, peace be with you. It doesn't even say that Thomas ended up touching his hand. It doesn't say he touched him at all. The only response we're given by Thomas is that he said, My Lord, my God. I like to think that when he saw Jesus, it became unnecessary. But still, the kindness of God is not. Let me rebuke you until you believe rightly. The kindness of God is, I'm going to enter into your skepticism with you, your struggle. In each situation, there's this you catastrophe based upon the experiencing the resurrection. It's remarkable. In the resurrected Jesus wants you to experience being known like Mary, wants you to experience the turn from fear to peace, from disbelief to total trust that responds in worship. Taking this all together, we have hope beyond what is here. And the next move is that the resurrected Jesus redeems our wounds. 
Notice, pay attention to the moment with Thomas especially. The resurrection doesn't mean the wounds are no longer there. In fact, apparently it would be profoundly wasteful of God to remove the things that we had gone through that made us who we are. We think about the resurrection, no more tears, no more pain. You think, oh, well, that scar on my hand's going to go away. I've got a biblical case for you that that scar might not go away. Sorry, guys. <laughs> we don't know. But what we know is that God does not waste your suffering. There is not an ounce of suffering that he says, that's useless to me. The scars show that Jesus' pain was real, but that it didn't win. In the words of the esteemed theologian and rock star, Papa Roach, scars remind us that the past is real. Take that for what it's worth, it's Papa Roach. Apparently he was here, we're supposed to come to Missoula last week. I was hoping he would show up for the sermon since I was quoting him, but he decided not to. I want you to notice that it's precisely the scars that Thomas wants to see, though. Because if there was no scars, then something else is going on. Jesus retains those scars for purpose and meaning. And last week we talked about how Jesus inviting not Jesus inviting, but Simon carrying the cross of Christ may have very well contributed to that Simon's conversion. In the same way, wounds do the same thing. Sometimes the scars, the things that we've gone through, they are some of the most meaningful ways of expressing God's love and devotion, His goodness to sustain you. I don't have the answers as to why you go through the way you, why, why it all happened and why it all turned out the way it did. Anybody who says they have those answers, you should probably just walk away. They're typically not helpful. They mean well. But I know that God doesn't waste an ounce of suffering. The fact that this is included in the story means that God takes suffering very seriously. He doesn't pretend like it's not there. He doesn't live in total avoidance. It's reality, but there's a huge catastrophe involved. The joyful turn. Trauma changes you. It does. As a lot of times people want to say, well, can't you just get back, can't, can't I just get back to normal? No, you can't. Once you go through things, they, they make you. But listen to what Diane Lamberg, I quoted her last week. She's a psychologist who, who works particularly on issues of trauma and suffering. She says, those who have been traumatized by abuse, violence, war, or earthquakes will never be the same. Lives are permanently altered. The message of the scars and the resurrected Christ is not, that they, not, that the, is not merely that the resurrection takes the suffering away, but rather that the resurrection catches it up into God's glory. The resurrection redeems our wounds. I've got another point. I'm going to go ahead and tell you to fill it in, but I'm not going to cover it. The resurrected Jesus releases us with a story. 
every one of them is commissioned in some way to talk about their experience that they have with Jesus. We'll talk about that more later. But what does it mean to confess? I just want to end here. Worship team, you can join me if you'd like. I'm going to end with this and we'll sing a song and then have just a few moments of talk. Philip Yancey, I say this all the time, but it's true and it's wonderful. Philip Yancey, in looking at the resurrection, says if, if the resurrection happened, it means that Jesus is on the loose out there somewhere. And we experience this Jesus by the power of his spirit. Interestingly, Philip Yancey just this week released an article that he has been diagnosed with Parkinson's. And I, I encourage you to Google his reflection. It's beautiful. It's got you catastrophe written all over it. So you catastrophe, optimism's nice. You catastrophe's realistic. So for those who are like, I'm a realist, then you need to, you need to study you catastrophe because it takes seriously your realism. The resurrection speaks to the idea that we all crave hope, not optimism. We need a story in which to live, a foundation on which to stand, a lens through which to see. And there's no other worldview, no other person that gives you the you catastrophe. None. And the beauty is, is that God is not simply going, let me remake that for you. He entered into it himself. That's the beauty of the resurrection. So when we confess that Jesus was resurrected on the third day in connection with the creed, we are saying that Jesus was physically dead and physically raised. And that is the basis of the good news. That is the story in which we've been invited to. Paul says this in Philippians 3.10, listen to this. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Listen to that. I want to know and experience the power of the resurrection. The beauty is, is that in Christ, you can begin to taste and see that the Lord is good now. You can experience the Eucharist, the, the, I keep saying I say the Eucharist, the catastrophe now. In the midst of it, you can experience that same turn that Mary and the disciples experienced. Will you open yourself up to him? That's the question. Thanks for checking us out and listening to the podcast. We hope this resource has been meaningful for you during this time in your life. We invite you to share this episode and leave us a review to let us know how we are doing in sharing the gospel in our cultural climate. Be sure to check us out online at thetablechurch.us.